Yeah. 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 We should start doing the podcast yeah. and then let's talk to the podcast. <laughs> this is a podcast. Oh, okay. Go on then. And yay! Welcome to. Uh, ow! Ow! Stop that. Episode fifty, a special Christmas edition of the world famous Tetrapodology podcast. I'm Sebastian de Crab. Sebastian de Crab, and I'm Anakin Skywalker. Yay! Star Wars reference. Christmas. Star Wars. Uh, we're just talking about Christmas trees, and. Uh, I got a real Christmas tree, an actual tree. Yeah. And uh, John said it should have insects in it. <clears throat> and I said, well, maybe it has. And that reminded me well, the, the the fact that arthropods are in everything. Did you know that you're legally allowed to have a certain a number of insect parts in, you know, like peanut butter and chocolates? They've all got bits of peanut eating or chocolate eating arthropods in them somewhere. And you're legally allowed. A- Little known fact, that's where get peanuts get their flavor. What? <laughs> fact. <laughs> fact. Hashtag bat fact. Air quotes. I don't think that's true. <laughs> so, uh, in this episode, um, oh dear, I can't be writing. I can't read my writing. Uh, some newsy stuff. Cash newsy for questions. stuff. Yeah, cash for questions. And Star Wars. We're going to talk about Star Wars. I think we're going to talk about the creatures in Star Wars, aren't we? Mm. Before, yeah, well, some of that. Uh, before... The um yeah, we are going to watch the new film, but we're going to talk about that probably after we've seen it. We haven't neither of us have seen it. We didn't go out last night and watch it. Um, and then afterwards, episode fifty, big surprise. So stay tuned. Yeah, an extra special surprise. Wow, wow. you'll love it if you're a regular listener. So do we need to talk about the fact that this is episode fifty and uh, that was there's forty nine episodes beforehand. No, no, we've got the surprise at the end, so that's good enough. Okay, right, great. Uh okay. Um couple of couple of newsy things to start with then. Uh Tetrapod Zoology currently hosted at Scientific American. Oh dear, that's not looking good at the site at the moment, is it? But they're they're meant to be fixing it. Um It looks fine with like my ad blocker, Darren. <laughs> Do you not get those bars at the top that obscure yeah, half I've the screen? I've got a relatively big screen, but yeah, the the bar one of the bars is blocked by the ad blocker, so it's nowhere near as bad as the screenshots I've seen oh, from your yeah, computer. Yeah. And also, if you shrink it down, if you shrink the window down to to like the half the no a third the size of your screen, then it uh, that that kind of seems to solve the problem. But but overall, tricks it God. into thinking you're looking at it on a mobile phone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So any anyway, um yeah, yeah. If you look at it on a smartphone, that's fine. Um that article on Indian wild pigs, uh thanks to everyone for comments on that and uh yeah, some of the research that I spoke about there to do with like how you distinguish um the DNA of, of that wild pig, Indian wild pig from domestic pigs is some of that's brand new research. It's only published twenty fifteen, so um um there's this cool new paper out uh in um science advance oh god (laughs) why did i do the research beforehand if you look at that when you too hard when you look at the paper the paper's only got the abbreviation of it and the the abbreviation is sci dot ad v dot Science advances. What kind of? I've never heard of such a journal. Anyway, oh well, it doesn't matter. Sci dot ad dot. 
So, yeah, look in the Adver- journal. No, Adver- 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 Okay, yeah, cool. Uh, new paper by Santiago Caraman and Joel Craycraft. A new time tree reveals Earth history's imprint on the evolution of modern birds. Not going to talk about this at length, but the point is, this is like the 27th um, a big new study on the uh, shape of the Neonathene family tree. Um, the, the already 2015 we've had the Prometheus one uh re, rejigging of a uh, neolithic family tree and this is on, off the back of this particular one is off the back of the Jarvis et al tree which was published uh I think it was last year and what they've done in this new study is they basically use the genetic backbone and they calibrate it based on like uh several hundred fossil uh uh taxa and uh and they Claremont and Craigcraft they they say a thing that Joel Craigcraft has been saying for a while anyway, which is that like Neonathene um, early evolution was mostly a Southern Hemisphere event. And they're mostly like their key divergences are happening in like Antarctica, South America. And then there's a couple of um, lineages that spread north. So it's kind of the idea that the shape of the bird family tree is determined by biogeography and uh, climatic uh, history and stuff. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, <clears throat> I'm sure I could say more intelligent things about it, but I don't want to keep it real brief. Okay, that'll do on that. Um, I want to talk about this new book, this one. Wildcats of the World. Wildcats of the World by Luke Hunter, illustrated by Priscilla Barrett. And this uses a lot of the, well, it uses Priscilla Barrett's illustrations from the Carnivals of the World Field Guide, which I don't have in front of me right now because I wanted to check the precise publication details god damn it <sighs> my library is in disarray at the moment because of the move um yeah world cats of the world this I'll, I'll talk about this on tetrapods orgy in time this is a 240 ish right exactly 240 page book really beautiful really like fantastically well illustrated really nice Mm -hmm. spread of pretty photographs to text ratio and you can see these great illustrations and um and it's and it's so densely packed with information on everything about all of the living cat species you've got like taxonomy and phylogeny sections anatomical descriptions distribution habitat feeding ecology social spatial behavior reproduction and demography and little maps and skull diagrams and everything so it's really nice and a plus point a, a thing that a unique selling point is the the uh, up-to-datedness of a lot of the information there's loads of brand new stuff here uh, in terms of like behavioural and ecology, ecological uh, discoveries, but also conservation status and how many they are, there are and and where they are. Look at that photo of a clouded leopard yawning. That's, yeah. uh, that's nuts. Um, of course, the reason I'm saying this is because many people have asked what is the novelty of this book compared to this well-known volume, Sunquist and Sunquist, which was only published in 2002, also called Wildcats of the World, (laughs) and also a fantastically, well, not as well illustrated. Uh, You can see it's rather more technical, but, you know, kind of a, oh dear, not many pictures in it at all, really, are there? (laughs) (laughs) But but how does that one, because Sunquist and Sunquist is really good, uh, how does it compare to to Hunter uh, 2015? And I would say that Sunquist and Sunquist is more technical. It kind of reads more like a journal article with uh, citations throughout and lots more like tables and graphs and that sort of thing. Um, And they sort of complement each other. I mean, 
I would say that the hunt the hunter one is more popular and more attractive and it's got more up to date information. But um but it doesn't diminish the value of Sunquist and Sunquist because that's more technical, got lots more references in it, lots more technical information. So I don't know. One of those things where if people say which one should I buy? Well, it depends. If you're if you're interested in cats from a technical perspective, I would advise Sunquist Sunquist. Whereas if you are interested in more for the popular reason or for someone who's interested in cats but isn't necessarily needing to cite stuff or write technical papers, then I'd recommend Hunter. And I'd say Hunter is better in terms of like how attractive it is and how popular it is. Hmm. So so there you go, a little diversion on books called Wild Cats of the, Cats of the World. Yeah. These aren't the only books called Wild Cats of the World. There's about another seven, you know, there's a, there's, there's, yep. there's, there's some great books. It's the Cats. W and Cats. the W, isn't it? The Wild Cats, Wild World. Yes. It's just irresistible. Wild Cats are one of those groups of animals where people will always be churning out really good books on them, you know, like birds. Mm. There's always new books on birds, there's always new books on cats because people will buy them, the same as dinosaurs as well but but how many other groups how many times have i said this before so many groups where there are not good books like that there's nothing like that well on. maybe those groups should try to be more interesting darren yeah stupid animals yeah yeah what do you think evolving they're doing? themselves into cul-de-sacs of boringness <clears throat> i think it's just because authors don't try they don't have because when people do do it like there there are amazing books on lizards and snakes like the among the best books ever have been done on lizards and snakes but um and amphibians <laughs> But just there aren't enough of them. People aren't trying hard enough. Okay. Well, it's probably publishers to a large degree. You know, no publisher wants to leap in on a group. Then very little precedent for selling books. This also is true. Yeah, we know there are people interested in these groups. It's not that I don't think. Right. Yep. Oh, um, we were going to talk about um, Adam and Co's new uh, your source study, weren't we? Mm-hmm. Briefly. So thanks to um, Adam Smith for the heads up on uh, this paper in PLOS Computbiol. Is that computational biology? I don't know the full name of the journal. PLOS Computational Biology. Computer simulations imply four-limb-dominated underwater flight for plesiosaurs. This is by Liu. I've pronounced that incorrectly, but that's L-I-U. Smith, Gu Tan, Liu, and Turk. And I... Uh, at the time of speaking, the paper is embargoed. We haven't seen the technical paper. So thanks to uh, Adam for sending us the uh, the press release. And there's an article about it that's in the Daily Fail, which was uh, released illegally. You know, uh, preempting the em- pre-embargo. What, what was it titled? Flappy dinosaurs swammed quickly, or something? Uh, yeah. Study <laughs> reveals that four four flipper dinosaurs swam like penguin. Yeah, good work, good work, guys. But uh, you know, um, I'm I'm glad journalists get paid to write that sort of thing. Although I think the title of the article was changed. Presumably, someone like Adam complained and they changed dinosaur to marine reptile. It is reptile. now solving the mystery of how ancient reptiles swam. Animation reveals plesiosaurs flapped like penguins to fly through water. Yeah, yeah. So they seem to be saying, I mean, forelimb dominated. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're not the first people to say this. Uh, Theogarten Lingham Soliar published some papers years back where he said that um, the hind limbs were most likely used only for steering and that, that propulsion was with the forelimbs alone. And, uh, okay, I haven't read the paper here, but 
I'd be interested to know what you think, but I, I'm skeptical of claims that they relied on the forelimbs alone, predominantly because the forelimbs and hindlimbs are so incredibly similar in size and shape in plesiosaurs in general. Um, in fact, you know, in some of them, if you find an isolated paddle, it's almost not impossible, but it's really hard to tell whether it's a forelimb or a hindlimb paddle. Whereas in animals that are forelimb dominated, sea turtles and penguins, and otariids, sea lions, fur seals, do their forelimbs and hindlimbs look exactly the same? No, they're markedly different. Um, so yes, that's kind it's of one a surprising out. finding if it's true. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, why why don't yes. they get more differentiation if the function's different? Yeah. Well, well, we'll, yeah. See, when, we'll see when the paper comes out, and we know there's well, more exactly, work I'm, going on on this stuff as well, right? So exactly. Yeah, there's 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 more that they say in this paper that we haven't covered here. So. Apologies if we, it seems like we've said negative things about the study. I'm sure it's, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, we haven't read the paper, so we, we can't. Haven't read the really, paper. So, can't really comment. <laughs> can't really comment on it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Apologies if it seems we've said anything negative. There is, this, we, there is, of course, this other study that I'm involved in, Luke Muscat's work involving lasers and flume tanks and computer modeling as well. And uh, that's going to come out at some point. And that says some additional stuff on plesiosaur swimming behavior, uh, possible behavior. And, stuff which which luke already kind of released online anyway <laughs> well done luke <laughs> there's a bit of a story there but i won't go into it oh. uh, okay yeah <laughs> but a lot of it was presented at svpca anyway wasn't it well some of it was. yeah to like to like 80 people <laughs> but it's tweeted and stuff isn't it okay um should we do cash for questions then? Let's do cash for questions. Okay. Okay. This thank one's you f- to people who are... Sorry, I was just going to say thanks to everyone who's uh, uh, interacting on Facebook as we, uh, um, as we podcast. Thank you, David Godfrey, for telling me I should talk about fish. Thank you, Aubrey, for mentioning on Phallosaurus. Thank you, Marco, for snakes. Thank you, James. <laughs> Penguins. Memo says we should talk about the new T-Rex. Have you heard about this new T-Rex unveiled in Germany? Uh, yeah, I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Memo also mentions Mark Witten's Tenostrophius stuff, which uh, is pretty pretty compelling. But uh, we're not talking about Mark. Don't, don't, bring, don't, bring, don't bring Mark into it. <laughs> <laughs> he knows why. Yeah. Okay. okay, are we done? Are we done? All right. Let's go on to the paid uh, shout-outs then, shall we? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sam Barnett asks, Do you subscribe to the idea that there was no flesh between the upright processes of Amargosaurus spines? And if so, how did they prevent parasites slash nesters? Now, thanks, Sam, for that spot-on length of that question. Very nice. Textbook. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. That wasn't sarcastic, was serious. No, that was that's really good. Yeah. That's uh, punchy to the point. Okay, so um, maybe you should say what a Margosaurus is, just in case anyone doesn't know. A Margosaurus is an Argentinian lower Cretaceous, well, middle Cretaceous-ish uh, sauropod, um, described in the 1990s, and it's a dicreosaurid. This is a group of comparatively short-necked relatives of Diplodocus and Brontosaurus and such. Um, Dicreosaurids are known from Africa as well as from South America, maybe from, maybe from other places as well. And Amargosaurus is famously weird because it's got these like uh, long paired spiny 
processes, bony processes that grow off the dorsal surfaces of its neck vertebrae. It's got tall spines that grow up on the surfaces of its dorsal vertebrae as well, but they're not paired and spine-like. In fact, they're kind of like paddle-shaped, and they are less often remarked upon. But uh, but these neck spines have been the subject of uh, the typical kind of speculation that such structures are. When Amargosaurus was published, I think I think 1991, that sounds about right. I, didn't, I haven't checked this. I'm not going to Google it. Mm. Um, uh, when Amargosaurus was published, immediately people said, oh, these long... These long spines presumably were connected by webbing and formed sails. But because they're paired, this animal must have two parallel sails along the dorsal surface of its neck, which is pretty radical. Yeah, pretty weird, if that's the case. Yeah. So, I guess the question is, do you think that was the case? Yeah, Well, and then the sort of follow-up to that is that a few years later... A couple of people, Greg Poole, uh, best known for his artwork, uh, Leo Salgado, who works on South American sauropods and other dinosaurs, they both said that the the idea of neck sails seems unlikely because wouldn't it be really impractical to have like, you know, webbing connecting the sort of ideas that it might constrict the mobility of the neck, but also the shape of the spines themselves maybe isn't consistent with that. The argument is that in the sorts of bony spines that we uh, associate with sails, and of course there's a whole argument here as to how valid that idea is anyway, um, I think it's valid based on what we see in some living reptiles, but I don't want to talk about that at length, that's another, that's another issue. Um, in those sorts of spines, they tend to be laterally compressed and kind of like, uh, sort of like, Wow, what's the word? I want to say subrectangular, but that doesn't seem right because they're long and slim, sort of like laterally compressed, but subrectangular, rectangular in cross section. Mm. That's what you sort of expect for the first spines that would be embedded in a in a sail type thing. Whereas the Amargosaurus spines, and I haven't seen the specimen. I have seen casts actually, so why haven't I ever noticed this? But whatever, they're meant to be like rounded in cross section, and they taper to points. And uh, so it's been argued. Uh, by Paul and Salgado, um, that um, that it looks more likely that they are actually like horn-like structures, spike-like, spine-like, spiky things sticking out the back of the neck, and that maybe they were encased in horn tissue. And uh, if that's true, then whether did this animal have like parallel rows of like antelope horns sticking out the back of its neck that it used in self-defense and combat or something? Paul suggests that they could it could clatter them together in an acoustic display. Classic Greg Paul <laughs> speculation. Um, yeah, so so these two competing ideas, and today we don't really know which is which, and people sort of mention these and say, well, either is plausible. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've got no idea. I don't, don't try to jump on this. No. Okay. No, I mean, I, I've I done a picture a- of it, and I haven't put a sail on it. I put some horn extensions, but that was just because that's what I felt like doing at the time. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Do uh, my pref- Yeah, my preference is for spines. I, I do think that feels more likely than parallel sails, um, mostly because of this claim about cross-sectional shape and them tapering, tapering to points. Mm. But um, Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, I've got a picture of the skeleton. It's probably a good thing to do when you're listening to us talk about this stuff, but they're fairly continu- continuous with the um, 
the the dorsal spines, aren't they? There's not this discon- discontinuity, or maybe this yeah. is just the particular specimen I'm looking at. I don't really know. Well, there's only one. Oh well, you know that it's a cast, and all right, yeah. Well, bits um, of the cast, aren't they? I don't know how complete it is. Yeah, yeah. As as always with dinosaurs, it's not as complete as you might think from life reconstructions. And in fact, some of the characteristic things of the skeleton that you see in most books are mistakes carried over from reconstructions of Dicraeosaurus. There's this. Mm. Greg Paul wrote about this thing they did with the lower jaw. They um, they made a mistake when reconstructing the lower jaw of Dicraeosaurus, and like and bent the anterior part down too far which gave it this weird ventral bulge which is incorrect and when they reconstructed a margosaurus they did it exactly the same way so they gave it the same bulge even though apparently that's completely anatomically incorrect but one thing you'll yeah you'll notice in skeletons i'm looking at currently looking at one in melbourne mm-hmm. um what looks obvious from the skeleton is that the neck spines do grade into the dorsal spines more than you more than you would think from a lot of artistic reconstructions yeah but then there's another one down here which is the one in museum of paleontology in agido ferruglio yes is that the one with its head right down on the ground it is and you can see there that there's actually a disc looks like there might be a discontinuum that's crazy. I've never seen that one before. And the spines look a lot longer. They do. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's go- I don't know what's going on there. So, yeah, it'd probably be a good idea to actually get the original paper up somewhere, but we don't have time for that now, so we're going to have to no. shoot for the hip from the hip. Um, so the the continuity there suggests to me that it's more embedded in the neck than you might think, right? That yeah, uh, yeah. That these aren't or. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would think that you know, tall neural spines are not unique to this animal in sauropods. Um, there are other uh, diplodocoids that aren't reconstructed with sails that have got fairly tall neural spines. So you would expect the neural spines on the dorsal vertebrae to be deeply embedded within fat and muscle and such. So it's got it's got like a thick muscular ridge along the top line of the back, a fairly typical thing for dinosaurs. If you then carry that ridge forward onto the neck, well that means that the basal third or so of the neck spines are presumably going to be continuous with that thick ridge. But then the question is, do the end the distal two thirds ish of the neck spines project above that, yeah. in which case are they spines or sails? And um, mm. so, how do they? And I'm not sure which what Sam's getting at here with the parasites nesters is that if they were sails, you'd have a nice little ah uh, sort mm-hmm. of bowl in there in the neck, in which things could get in and nest. Is that what he's saying? <laughs> is that what he's saying? Well, uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I did ask him, but I've forgotten his answer. Sorry, Sam. Um, I wondered if he was thinking that if there are spines, then there are these gaps between the spines, and maybe he's implying that those are sort of like biological weak spots and uh, things might get in there. But I'd be more worried with sails in that there's actually a bit that you can't like scrape up against a branch. It's really difficult to get at. I would say, I would say kind of basically any issue like this, when you look at a fossil animal, you think, well, how on earth could it? 
keep cool or how on earth could it deal with parasites or whatever? It's like, yeah, but if you looked at any living animal and didn't know what that did, you would ask the same question. And what we know from living animals is that they have got like a hundred different strategies, behavioral strategies to cope with things to do with hygiene and thermoregulation and stuff like all these arguments about animals needing giant sails and crests and things to do with thermoregulation. It's like, well, why couldn't they do what living animals do to thermoregulate, which involves like flapping their arms in the wind or lying down in cold water or sweating or something. Um, I think you have to, you should be thinking of those behavioral things that you often can't demonstrate in the fossil record before you start thinking of crazy anatomical things. So what I'm trying to say in a long winded way there is that if you think, how is this animal going to deal with parasites and stuff? So, but if you think of, of living animals, um, they think of all the things they do to get around problems like this. You know, maybe they are, maybe they do have uh, places where there are parasites tucked away in crevices they can't get to, or maybe they do something unusual. Maybe they do some, they have some behavioral solution to these kinds of problems, like they apply mud to themselves, they roll in dust, or they groom one another. I mean, um, and dinosaurs would have, non bird dinosaurs would have engaged in grooming and preening um, of themselves and if they were social animals you know maybe of well not maybe almost certainly they would have done it to mates and uh, family members and, and stuff Every, everything does that it's not just a thing that birds and primates do you know there are lizards that, that groom one another fish grooming is all over the place in fish um, so um, so th- those things are possible yeah. We don't we, we don't talk about this because obviously we can't test it. I mean, I've written a couple of articles about possible dental adaptations in some birds that might be some fossil birds, Cretaceous birds that might be linked to um preening and some structures, some unusual dental structures seen in non-bird theropods that might be linked to uh feather care. But you think for other kinds of dinosaurs, well sauropods could well have those those crazy teeth in like diplodocoids could have been used in grooming and stuff. I, I, I wondered yeah. as well if Sam was getting at that. Um, there was this this weird. The term paper is inappropriate for it. There was this article put online maybe this year or last year, which proposed that um, predatory manoraptorans like dromaeosaurids were like vampiric neck grabbing parasites and that this explains why the why um neck and skull ornamentation was so prevalent in herbivorous dinosaurs so like the frills and horns of ceratopsians <laughs> evolved in association with like an anti-predatory defense an anti-parasitic thing <laughs> and uh and presumably the spines of a Margosaurus would be ideal for stabbing, you know, stopping Dromaeosaurids jumping on the back of your, back of your neck. I wondered if Sam was getting at that. I don't think he was. But, um, and, and I don't think we should take that idea tremendously seriously. But, uh, I don't know. There's direct fossil evidence. Uh, the, one of the very few actual, you know, combat uh, fossils mm-hmm. is Velociraptor with its... Uh, claw embedded in the neck of uh, Protoceratops. True, true. Yeah. <laughs> ah, take that, Darren. <laughs> Compelling. <laughs> yes. Not that there are no other ways of explaining that fossil, of course, other than a failed attempt at uh, neck parasitism. But, um, yeah. Nope. It's the only thing. Oh. <clears throat> so, so to summarise, yeah, I, I think the idea of of spines projecting from the soft tissue in a margosaurus is more likely 
And, well, I, I shouldn't say anything more about the prevention of parasites or nests, as I've said yep. too much on that already. But um, there are a couple of Tet Zoo and SV Pow articles on Amargosaurus and specifically on the anatomy of its neck spines. And there's a weird link to potus, the, the primates, not potus, the birds. <laughs> potus, the primates, because they've got like projecting bony spines apparently using self-defense on their neck. So there is a president for this sort of thing. Oh, yeah. In the living Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So sort of answered, Sam, which is don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, oh, this is, a, this is a spec zoo question. Ooh. Yeah. So this is from Devin Myers. What sort of animals do you do you think would fill the niches occupied by amphibians if they were go to go extinct before the end of the anthropogenic mass extinction? Let's also assume that humans are out of the picture for the sake of this scenario. So yeah, last mm. last episode we were talking about you know the and we've talked about many times the current crisis and especially how amphibians are doing badly. So they don't seem to have done badly in well, more recent paleontological history, right? But, okay, mm. so let's say this is truly disastrous for them. This is the end of amphibians. Yeah. What do you think moves into that sort of... Well, there's lots of roles, but you know, what moves into the roles that amphibians... The niche. The niches. Niches. The ni- niches. <laughs> niches. <laughs> Makes that. me want to swear, just to rhyme with it. <laughs> niches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right uh, well there's lots of possibilities but if you think of Devon is obviously thinking of that kind of you know shallow water fresh water yeah sort of amphibious swamp land lake edge thing mm. then uh, well one possibility is um, uh, like uh, certain bunches of arthropods big arthropods I'm thinking like um Diverse, the aquatic bugs like um, oh, what are they called? Are they called water scorpions? There's there's all these flat-bodied predatory bugs that are already, and bugs in the strict sense, members of Hemiptera that are predators of small fish and swimming invertebrates. Uh, and uh, today they they will eat like you know amphibian larvae and and even small frogs and stuff. Um, you could get an explosion of those that could that could. Uh, and the thing about amphibians, living amphibians, is they tend to they tend to breed and display in the water. But then, although there's a large number of exceptions to this, there are many aquatic frogs and salamanders. Uh, they then tend to be predominantly terrestrial. So, do you want a group that's like filling up uh, eco space during some part of its life, but then transforming to terrestriality? I was also thinking of certain groups of of fish. Fish. Oh, made me talk about. That made me talk about fish. I've just been doing the bit. Just been doing the bit in the textbook on um, Gobiomorpharians. These enormous groups of thousands and thousands of species. And um, I think we we did touch on this in the podcast, an episode way back. But the fact that we tend to think of the invasion of the land in vertebrate history as like a one-off thing associated with tetrapods. But, of course, in fact, there are like, say, seven lineages of bony fishes 
that have that are doing things at the water's edge, like you know there are climbing perches and uh, eels and um, clingfishes and um, mudskippers and then others that are behaving in a manner not that different from that associated with amphibians. They're sort of maybe they're more reliant on the water than than yeah truly terrestrial amphibians, obviously, but. We are you know, allowed a little bit of evolution in this. I mean, I think it's a... Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so imagine, like, I mean, mudskippers at the moment are restricted to the uh, uh, Asian tropics, mangrove environments. And they, they they keep their water in their big, like, gill pouch things. And they have to return to the water at least every couple of hours to re- replenish it. But... um Imagine, like, a terrestrial radiation of those that take over, like, salamander-like roles... And there's no reason why you couldn't. Well, no reason. That's, no, I have to, I have to think, I'd have to think about this one quite hard. But theoretically, why couldn't you have an invasion that still rely on like moist environments? So they're often hiding in burrows or under logs or in leaf litter. But they could become in. They could. They could like evolve lung-like structures, um, or evolve or evolve gill pouches and gills. That are just better at retaining water. Better there. <sighs> I, don't, I don't. I don't. I don't know the details here. But um, what about from the other direction? What about um, more terrestrial adapted things, sort of reinvading um, shallow water niches? Niches. What, what sort of uh, lizards and snakes are available to? Do these sorts of things. You got a you got a whole bunch of lizards that are experimenting with like amphibious like, pools and and swimming and catching fish and stuff. There are there are members of the the alligator lizard group that do this. They're obviously the marine iguanas, but they're marine. Shouldn't think of marine stuff. Freshwater. There's uh, the um, uh, Bornean earless monitor. Um. Yeah, there's there's a few, but. See, I, I can, I can, it's certainly conceivable that the lizards that are experimenting with aquatic habits can become like fully aquatic. They can evolve paddle-like tails and mm. large size and stuff, and then evolve into like mosasaur-type animals again. But I don't see them doing that because because one of the key things of amphibians, again, we're talking specifically here about lizard amphibians, small size is like a key a key thing. It has to be a radiation of hundreds of species or thousands of species, a tiny size less than 20 centimetres, with only a handful of species bigger than a 50 centimetres. Um, what about tiny snakes? Well, there's already a lot of amphibious small snakes, but not tiny snakes. There's like crab-eating snakes. There's fish-egg-eating snakes. Fish-eating snakes. Yeah, there are tiny snakes, though, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, there's there's hundreds of species of um, worm snakes thread snakes yeah blind snakes they are they're all um well that's interesting they've been around since like the cretaceous and they've basically done the same thing ever since i mean they're really weird and really specialized but they're all um so far as i know they're all like dry adapted animals of deserts and semi-deserts and scrublands and grasslands they're not associated with aquatic environments i don't think at all um, and they're all marmacophages. They're all eating ants and termites. Hmm. Um, so, 
and it would be unprecedented for them to make a shift to amphibious life. I mean, Cecil, you could say Sicilians are doing the thing that they do in wet and moist environments. Yeah, there, there are. There, I mean, Sicilians got a diverse bunch. There are Sicilians that live in, um, you know, forests and, uh, like, you know, all kinds, all kinds of very terrestrial environments. But then there are others that are associated with swamps, river edges, and then there are aquatic ones. And there are some that like do a bit of both. They're they're aquatic and they breathe breathe with gills, but they excavate mud burrows. So they they burrow in submerged mud. Um, what about what about okay? What about mammals? What can they do? You've got you've got several rodent groups that are doing things at the water's edge. Uh, they got life. Yeah, they tend huh? not to be really small, right? Most of them, most sort of semi-aquatic mammals tend to be. Big-ish. Well, no, you got like you got loads of mouse, mousey-sized amphibious mice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's 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 like in uh, in uh, Australasia, South America, Africa, there are mice total length, so mm-hmm. snout tip, tail tip, total length less than twenty centimeters that are regarded as like amphibious mice because they swim, wade. And uh, some of them even dive to catch aquatic prey, including like fish and like, gastropods and things like that, as well as aquatic plants. So, but again, I, I've, I'm struggling to think of them as doing the sort of you know the thing that like amphibians do, the same thing that salamanders. And uh, my 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 you know my favourite option there is is uh, various fish groups that are already at the edge of the water that can radiate into like freshwater pools and things and then become more terrestrial and then maybe have like a what's this well they might still have a biphasic life history you know they they breed during the well they breed in the water but then come out of the water to exploit uh, uh, prey on land but to do that to move around actively on land they need to have efficient uh, terrestrial adaptations frogs can jump salamanders can walk Sicilians can wiggle and burrow um, without positing the re-evolution the convergent evolution of digited limbs and things which is possible there are limb-like structures in some of these fish mm-hmm. um you know, frogfish, which, okay, frogfish are not one of the groups I'm thinking of, but frogfish, for example, show you that, that Actinopterygian fish can evolve limb-like and digit-like structures. Um, okay, <clears throat> so there's your answer, Devin. Fish. Oh, that's a terrible answer. That's a terrible answer. What Good a terrible God. answer. Sorry, Devin, you didn't really get your money's worth there, did you? Fish. <laughs> oh, I don't know what... Well, what sort of answer do you want? And I've got fish on the brain. It's not my fault. <laughs> okay, <laughs> enough about, about fish. It. Let's start talking about Star Wars. Star Wars, a movie called Star Wars. Right. Star Wars Episode 7. Yeah, we're not actually going to be talking about Episode 7 at the moment, are we? Oh, no, of course not. That would be stupid. No, because we haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
we just can pretend that we've seen it because we know so much about it from all the things we've seen and read and all the merchandise. I've seen absolutely nothing. I know well, that there's a lightsaber that has the crossbar <laughs> in it and there's a crashed... Um, Star Destroyer. Star Destroyer, that's it. That's all I know. All right. Well, I know a little bit, little, just a little bit more than that, including mm. like, ah, no, I'm not going to say a thing because I know some epic spoilers which is kind of... I didn't find them out deliberately. But you know anyway. that there's a study out there that suggests people like things more when they've been spoiled, right? They actually huh. enjoy a film more if they know what's going to happen. So all this spoiler avoidance is actually, you know, science says <laughs> it's a waste of time. <laughs> well, yeah, I personally am not. I'm not of that don't spoil it kind of mentality. I mean, I, I've gone to great trouble to find out about things before seeing them. I went I, I went to so much trouble to get someone to tell me what happens at the end of The Sixth Sense before seeing the movie. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then I was like, ah, maybe it would be best if I didn't know he was a ghost. <laughs> spoiler. I'm oh, sorry, spoiler. Um, uh, yeah, so we've spoiled The Sixth Sense for you there, but we're not going to spoil The Force Awakens. Awakens. Pretty crappy title, I have to say. Yeah, why not The Force Awakes, which I think would have been better. Why has it got the Force. ends on in there? Sorry. Or go with, like, the Kraken, The, the Force Wakes. It's just... It's, uh, it's too long, the, it's wordy, it, it's silly. It's also it's also sort of so vaguely rubbish that it, it, it gives you the concept that they came up with the title before they before they like def- decided on a final script. It's like the Phantom Menace. It could be about absolutely anything. There was a claim for a while that after the Phantom Menace episode two was going to be called the Creeping Fear, <laughs> which is the, the same kind of idea. The, and the Force Awakens. So we, we know it's going to be about the resurgence of. Jedi or something. Well, I think the fa- but no, 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 I disagree. The the Phantom Menace is relatively specific. It's saying there's a threat which turns out not to be real. That's which quite. Was? It was. Oh God, I don't remember the plot. It See? was a t- absolutely See? terrible film, and it was so <laughs> complicated and dumb. But the I Phantom think it was, Menace was. It did Jar Jar He was a real menace. It was not <laughs> Phantom. He almost, he almost killed the entire franchise. What if... Now, those of you who know what I'm talking about will know this is not original to me. I'm not pretending it is. Okay, but this is obviously original to John, so bear with me. What if Jar Jar Binks is secretly a Sith Lord and he is the orchestrator of everything that happens? Think about it. He hangs out with Senator Palpatine. He... He's he gets himself into a place of great power and manages to remain in it for the whole duration of the original trilogy. He's a member of the Galactic Senate. He gives Palpatine special powers which enable the clone army to be assembled in the first place. He's got amazing athletic abilities. There's bits on Naboo where we see him like jump in the air and do a triple somersault and stuff like that. And uh, how many times have you seen these horrible films? Oh, only a few tens of times. <laughs> <laughs> I watched The Phantom Menace a couple of days ago because I've got kids, man. I've got kids. Oh, yeah, but you shouldn't be letting them see it. It's child abuse, Darren. It, Will wanted to watch the entire, all of the films in And you order should have before. said, yes, we can watch all three films. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's actually there's actually a really interesting thing happening with the with the prequel trilogy at the moment, which is there's lots of articles appearing online where people are saying that actually maybe it wasn't that bad, <laughs> and uh, thinking well you know if you look at what people said at the time, look at what people said at the time when it came out, there are loads of reviews where people are saying this is going to go down in history. It's one of the best films of all time. It's uh, so why do we think that's right and our considered opinion is wrong? I'm not. No, I'm not saying we think that's right. I'm saying that people are saying that. Look back at it. Look back at it now. Look back at what people said hmm. uh, when it came out. It's like now the universal opinion is that those films are the, the three prequels and the Phantom Menace in particular are terrible films on on so many levels for so many reasons. Um, and that's kind of like become like a mainstay of culture. And I'm not disputing. It. I think they're terrible films, but I enjoy a lot of terrible films as we covered last time. And and I don't think The Phantom Menace is terrible enough for me to not enjoy it. I actually do enjoy it. I think what the main thing that... I think the prequels were misconceived in that they shouldn't... The original series shouldn't have prequels because a lot of the original series about is about the mystery of the past, right? It's sort of been cut off. It's a wall because the world changed and people don't really understand what happened before that, you know. They refer to yeah. things that happened in the past. But... They're all a bit mysterious, and I think that's actually a huge power of the first films. Is that it feels yeah. like it's a history that you're never really going to know. Yeah, and, and, then, and it wouldn't even if they were decent films. I don't think they they would have been great. I don't I don't think they were good for the franchise sequels. Uh-huh. You know, I don't care. Yeah, keep going after Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I agree with that, and I, I think that you know a major weakness of the prequels is that they are completely inconsistent with the with 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 the canon that's established in mm. episode four and on so for example we're told repeatedly during episode four and others that you my friend are the last vestige of an ancient religion and oh this is from a time from you know this this uh oh they were the jedis were the the, the rulers in a they were the keepers of peace and justice in the the old republic and all this all these references to ancient times and and, and oldness I think everybody thought we're talking about millennia or centuries, yeah, not yeah. not eighteen years beforehand, <laughs> which is what which is what it turns out to be. It's, oh, eighteen years ago! So, within Luke's lifetime, yes. uh, it, it, it all went down, and uh, and just back then, that was when it was a golden age, and everything was there were Jedi everywhere. And was, that, that that was just yeah. Yeah, I think everyone agent. assumed that it was sort of talking about a secret society almost that had sort of been submerged in a modern society that had collapsed with the empire or something like this you know that there were an ancient order that had sort of disappeared from view yeah um yeah but i'm pretty sure that was the case i mean george lucas within recent years george lucas has implied or possibly even stated that he has the whole he's had the whole thing mapped out from the start and it just it was just a matter of time when he could raise the money but no it's so transparently obvious that it was it's made it was made up Often on the spot, hmm. cobbled together, cobbled together as they were making the films. Hmm. So the the key things that make the Empire Strikes Back, and obviously the Return of the Jedi isn't as strong a film, but the things that make Return of the Jedi, the bits of it that make it good, those key decisions, you know, like uh, the reveal about Darth Vader, uh, the fact that the the group all come together on Tatooine and, and face Jabba the Hutt, what Jabba the Hutt is, how he behaves, uh, all those things those were not an established part of the canon that Lucas had in mind when he was creating the characters at the time of, of doing the original Star Wars. 
those are things that just yeah were were like how am I going to get how am I going to get everyone back together again I know let's have them all meet up on Tatooine <laughs> yeah um what, what Luke uh, the Mark Hamill was involved in a car crash in about 1980 and I was like oh great so we're going to start filming the Empire Strikes Back and you're and you're covered in scars and bruises I know we could have you attacked by a snow monster <laughs> <laughs> and that's why the snow monsters <laughs> the hot bumpers obviously so, stuff like that it's like they weren't a part of deep canon Jabba the Hutt Jabba the Hutt was originally going to be like a little fat dude like a human in a shaggy vest yeah yeah <laughs> It's like, no, uh, let's make him into a, a sluggy thing. Yeah, they've still yeah. got... They actually shot him like that in a few scenes, didn't they? I think there are scenes out there where they've got him talking and he's yeah, just this yeah. dude. So for the special edition, they've put that footage back in yeah. and they've put in this awful, awful CG jabber, which they then, which they then redid twice. So there's now three different, there's four different versions of that scene with different, like, updated versions of, of Jabba the Hutt. He's d- completely the wrong size compared to how he is in Return of Jedi. And everyone knows that they had to, like, this bit when Han Solo walks over his tail and stuff because he couldn't go around him. And, and the, the thing, the reason that it grates on me in particular, that, that, that scene, is because in movies... The same as in editing anything. You often have a bit of text at point A, and when you then put the final cut together, you, you, you don't have point A in the film at all. You want to remove it. But there's a bit in point B where you go, hey, we can recycle some of that dialogue. So they did that. There's a scene, the famous scene in the cantina, Han versus Greedo. Of course, now Greedo shoots first. Oh, God. And then they changed that, and they changed that again. Oh, and then they changed it again. So now there's like seven different versions of that. But they recycled the dialogue from from Han meeting Jabba in the hangar bay to Han meeting Greedo in the cantina. So that means that in the special edition version of the movie, the several special editions of the movie, you've now got the same dialogue used twice because they just re- they recycled it. When they recycled it in the first place, that was a good example of recycling the dialogue because now we don't have that pointless scene. Jabba, he doesn't meet, doesn't, we don't need to see Jabber in the hangar bay. Yeah. We just need, just need the concept of Jabber introduced. Greedo discusses it. But now we've got Han talks to Greedo, discusses the stuff, and then Han meets Jabber and discusses the same stuff again, <laughs> word for word. So, uh, <laughs> ah! <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I think have the, learned- sorry, yeah, sorry. sorry. I think what's really interesting is that a lot of it's it's obvious that a lot of what made the original films feel like they were part of a bigger, more complicated world that you don't see is simply because they couldn't do it or had to leave it out for some reason. And I think it's really interesting that when some people are given free reign, like okay, do what you like, the results are far worse. It's like accident yeah. is a better storyteller than people are. And I think it's maybe because accident is how the real world works a lot of the time, right? And therefore, it feels more real in some ways to have a bunch of stuff that you never see, that you'll never find out about. The details that just make no sense. This stuff actually adds to a story and makes it feel more real rather than everything is mapped out carefully and is part of a plot and, yeah. The point has been made, again, that um, the original trilogy so episodes four five and six um were multi-person 
projects and two of them were not only the first one was directed by George Lucas the others were directed by other people and the original cut of the first Star Wars film was completely different in feel and flavour to the the released one it was apparently a far slower film with lots less happening in it and uh, the who, whoever Lucas spoke with says well this is a really good film but it's re- the pacing is far too slow you need to be far more choppy on the edits and stuff and they turn it into a completely different film because it turns out we know today that George Lucas is absolutely terrible as a as as a as a, an, a director and also as someone who's got a feel for how things should be paced and where the action should be focused and stuff so for the prequel trilogy Lucas is solely in charge of that, and he's this godlike character who can, you know, control and what's in the films and what isn't. You know, his official stamp of approval. He goes around with a little rubber stamp and stamps which spaceships and which uniforms and which creatures he wants to be in the films. You know, he controls everything like that. And as a result, what do we get? We get these like messy things that look like they look like World of Warcraft. The sort of scenes with like thousands and thousands of like battling things. You don't know where to look. You've got bits of dialogue that are overlapping. All these like kind of problems. And he is the sole person controlling that which was not the case for the original trilogy no way it had it had substantial input from people far more experienced and better at the craft than than he was and some people recognize this so much in view of how much he's tinkered with the original trilogy you know he keeps on making all these changes some of which are just comical you couldn't you couldn't make up how bad they are i just gave that one example hand hand versus greedo hand versus jabba using the same dialogue there's in return of the jedi right the end of Return of the Jedi, um, the Emperor is killing Luke. Vader has to make the decision. Do I stand with my Emperor or do I betray him and f- go with my emotions and help my son? Mm. And of course he helps his son and he silently and with great dignity lifts the Emperor up and throws him to his death. The Emperor screams and falls down. <sighs> Guess what he does now? Now, Vader looks at Luke, looks at Palpatine, looks at the Emperor, and then goes, No! (laughs) (laughs) Another example, another example. In The Empire Strikes Back, um, Luke thinks he can take on Darth Vader, but of course he can't. He's not up to his level of skill, his his control of the Force. And and Vader cuts his hand off and and has a lightsaber in his face and says, I could kill you, I could kill you, but... Listen to this. You're my son, and come with me, and I'll complete your training. You have to turn to the dark side, but come with me. It's the only option. Don't worry, it won't be so bad. Luke looks at him, basically says, uh-uh, I'd rather die, and falls to his death. As it happens, he doesn't die, right? Because yeah. he goes into a garbage chute and gets rescued. Yeah. And there's, again, there's just, it's just brilliant, brilliant. The fact that looks at Vader, his arm's been cut off, it's like, on you know, he doesn't say a word. He just falls because yeah. he's like, no, I would never join you. Now, what happens now? What happens now? No, he doesn't fall silently. He goes, <laughs> and they recycle the scream from the emperor when he was chucked by Vader in Return of the Jedi. In more recent modifications, they've removed that scream. But... <sighs> I cannot believe yeah. how terrible that is. He, he put he put the Emperor's scream on Luke as he thought, oh, God. So, and uh, yeah, and a lot of these changes. There's another change. I wish I could remember it now, but he, he's basically Luke 
he's a sort of a quip and a joke. Um, he says to R2-D2, after R2 gets out, is spat out of something. Yeah. You're lucky you don't taste very good. You're lucky you don't taste very good. And yeah, it's been changed, it one, hasn't it? Yeah, and it, it's just basically that was close or something like that, you know. Yeah, there's, there's really weird things. And there's I'm just a- thinking, what is the motivation behind a lot of these changes? Why add that scream? What, what did they think it added to that scene? Why in after after Luke's been beaten up by the Hothwampa and he's in recovery, C three PO says to him, "It's so good to see you fully functional, sir." And Luke doesn't say anything. Yeah, but now he says, "Thanks, three PO." <laughs> why did we need him acknowledging that? Oh, it's really important that he says that because that's crucial to his character development. The fact that he thanks he thanks a protocol droid. It's like no. <laughs> No, so so a bunch of people have created what's called the despecialized version of the original trilogy. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the first film, the first Star Wars. They've gone back, and uh, there's all kinds of problems with which sort of prints they use and everything because all the ones that have been released since, um, even if they're on Blu-ray or something, there there's like problems with the sort of the color matching and that kind of stuff. Yeah, color grading so, is difficult. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing, amazing the trouble they've gone to to basically reconstruct the original film as it was. And in some cases, they've had to use CG to reconstruct stuff that was in the original <laughs> because it no longer exists in a, in, a, in a form that's usable for high definition. So yeah. they've taken out all the, all the rubbish, all the new CG creatures. And I just, I just hate the fact that uh, the, the Dubak, the Dubak outside the cantina in the... In the in the very first Star Wars film, to me, it was quite, quite, kind of realistic and sort of, you know, mystery of cinema. The fact that there's this giant lizard-like creature standing outside the cantina, and it's just standing there, and it moves its head slightly, <laughs> and that's it. Now, in the, in the special editions, it's a CG monster, and it's going... Yeah. <laughs> like this, moving its head around and roaring. It's like, no! No! It's a domestic tamed beast that has been told to stand outside. It will do what you've told it to. It will stand there. It won't go... Rrr, rrr. <laughs> <laughs> I, hate that. I hate that about Pollywood. The fact that whenever you see a horse, it's whinnying. Whenever you see a dog, it has to be slobbering or panting. Whenever you see a gull, it has to be cawing. It's like, animals do that sometimes, but not all the time. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the changes seem to be about adding a noise or something like this. Adding more stuff. Oh, Ewok's got eyelids now. Uh, yeah, they actually blink. Right. Ewoks are pretty stupid to start with, so I don't really care about any of those changes. <laughs> I think they should have gone with the... Have you seen some of the concept ones with the big long legs? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so concept Ewoks are like... <laughs> they're like an Ewok, but they've got really long, stilt-like legs. No, well, that's not disturbing at all. No, yeah. yeah, they're really disturbing. I think that would have, <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> Instead of oh, these stupid little yeah. teddy bear type things, yeah. I couldn't, well, again, what were they thinking? Was, was that just a merchandise-based decision? I mean, the, the first Ewok I ever saw was a toy of Chief Chirper. <laughs> and it was like, what? <laughs> is this? All these other toys are like droids, Boba Fett, <laughs> Stormtroopers, and a teddy bear. <laughs> yeah, I think it's worth remembering that... Um, 
the crapness of the prequels is not really anything new. Return of the Jedi alone, if you just divorce it from the other films, is, ooh, it's a bit ropey. And those, um, the you Ewoks... You down here. It's just, but, it's not... I don't yeah. know, the stuff in Jabba's Palace, I really like that. Really, Yeah, there's good. some good bits in it, but it's, it's jammed, jammed up together with some... Oof. <laughs> wow uh. oh and there's Gungans at the end of Return of the Jedi now so and they all get together as ghosts at the end I mean oh, yeah come on really um I yeah I think that um Return of the Jedi is it's better than the prequels but it's not a good film it's good because we know of the stuff that's happened before it and it's got yeah. good bits in it but yeah <laughs> so we've ended up not talking at all about what creatures of creatures Star Wars? creatures of Star Wars. Are there any creatures in Star Wars? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we did talk about one of the creatures in Star Wars. Which one? The Ewok. Uh, no, yeah, well, the <laughs> Ewok. <laughs> I don't know the names of all these things. Like people just rattle off all the names. I didn't understand when I was a kid how anyone knew um, Boba Fett's name. It's barely mentioned in the films. And I was thinking, how does everyone talk about this guy like he's a character that everyone knows with a name? He's barely even in it. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. I guess you pick up their names from the merchandise, from the toys. That's how it come on. Um, uh, Boba Fett, hmm. that's another thing that annoys me. His original voice is badass. He's like, he's like a, he's a good badass character. But of course now, in the, the new versions, they've... They've changed. They've gotten rid of Jeremy Bullock's voice, actually played him, and um, they now use I can't remember his name. Uh, I got a feeling a Maori person, um, yeah, Tawana yeah. Lumpu or something. Um, he's got this like you know definite Australasian accent. So I was watching a thing the other does day. He, about, I, what, what line does he? Ha- what lines does he have in the original film? Put Captain Solo in the cargo hold, and he's not worth a lot to me dead. <laughs> So uh, he's got yeah, exactly. So he's got two lines. Is that right? Uh, that might be it. Because all the what other ones, he's survive. just he's just nodding. He's worth a lot to me. Uh, that might be, that might be it. <laughs> yeah, three lines. He's barely a character. I've always found this really confusing. Anyway, yeah, but I can see that sort of change. I can at least I can understand the motivation, right? That you want it consistent. You want his voice consistent across the whole thing. What I don't understand is a whole bunch of those changes where they've removed a joke, they've added a pointless line, they've added a stupid scream. What is this stuff for? Mm. Why? Well, this is this is the mind of George Lucas. I think I think it demonstrates that he just does not have a feel for what sort of things work. This is demonstrated by the prequel trilogy, and also by this. There's this film that I can't even remember what it's called there's this CG thing about like fairies and elves and like creatures like that which it came out maybe this year or maybe last year and um, and he said that he always thought that Star Wars was for 12 year old boys mm. so this was his foray into making the best movie ever for 12 year old girls now, there's some fairly crass, unfair stereotypes involved in those characterizations. Yeah. But this film, and I can't remember what it's called, if you find out about it, it had like 
the worst opening weekend ever in history and nobody's ever heard of it and nobody watched it. And I think what a guide to like how good Lucas is <laughs> at, at feeling and pitching stuff for uh, for like for like an audience. So uh, yeah, but I, yeah. in some ways, I think okay. I don't know all the ins and outs, but you know, he has made stuff that's good, and he's been involved with lots of stuff that's really good. <clears throat> I don't, I don't know whether I'll buy that he's just a talentless hack. <laughs> no. No, I wouldn't say that's true. So, you know, so the story for um, Indiana Jones films, for example. Mm. Um, is that just because he's talentless? I don't no, know. No. So, but there's but my my point is that, like I said earlier, is. He, any one of us can be really good. Well, not any one of us, but you know, people can be really good at coming up with ideas, concepts, characters. But then you'll need a guiding hand to mm. make that into something well crafted that will work. And that's the problem. I mean, he is, to in a sense, he's brilliant. You know, all this stuff he's invented, fantastic. But like I said, the original cut of the first Star Wars film apparently is very different. Doesn't really work. The reason that it's so good and the others are so good is because of the input of lots of people. There's teams of people involved behind those films. Whereas these other things, the prequel trilogy, this CG thing with elves and fairies that I can't remember, that's Luke's Strange alone. magic. That sounds right. That sounds right. Mm. Goblins, any- elves, fairies and imps and their misadventures sparked by the battle over a powerful potion. Does it say anything about its commercial success or otherwise? It's got 5.7 on IMDb, so that's a good start. Mm. Um, opening weekend, 5 million. Gross, 12... No, yep, 12 million, 400,000. That is really abysmal for a modern film. Yes, that's pretty bad. You know, you basically can't make a film like this for less than 50 million, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so... You know, like I said, I'm not the first person I've, I've had this said before, but but I think that because because of the success of these projects, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Howard the Duck, <laughs> that that um that he's become this, you know, he's got this enormous reputation in the industry and thinks of himself as the best thing ever since the invention of bread. <laughs> and um yeah and so it has this like you know this power and pe- and it's, so so maybe it's a good thing that disney have bought star wars from him because uh yes i mean i th- i agree i think that uh george lucas had his shot at star wars a second shot at star wars and it <laughs> proved that he had no idea <laughs> what made the original ones really good yeah. um yeah. so yeah i am much more hopeful about these than I would be about a new prequel or sequel made by George Lucas. Yes, I think there's much more chance that they will be enjoyable films and not... Well, I think that part of the problem with the original, with the prequels was they were just so pretentiously complicated. They were like... In some ways they were like fan stories, you know? <laughs> the so oh let's get into all the minutiae of this world and really flesh it out and yeah, i think well maybe that's what it is maybe george lucas is such a fan of himself 
that he basically got into writing fan fiction with his own stuff. <laughs> Not necessarily against fan fiction, but it really is for fans, you know, I think, a lot of the time. This sort of hyper-detailed fleshing out worlds that were never really meant to be fleshed out. Um, yeah. Okay. Mm. So, <clears throat> um, well, I so think... so much for this being... Yeah. What? Well, so much for this being a really short podcast. Okay. Before we get to the uh, okay, so let's let's special event. yeah, oh, the special event, yeah. Um, so let's do a prediction. How many stars do you think you're going to give the new Star Wars film? Well, yeah. Um, given what I've seen, I have I've watched all the TV spots and all the trailers and all that stuff, and given what I've heard people say that have seen it, I have. Not really high, but I have pretty, yeah, moderately high expectations. So I predict like eight out of ten, seven out, seven or eight out of ten. That's my prediction. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be roughly as good as Return of the Jedi, and therefore I'm going to give it uh, a six or a seven. Mm. Well, so we're not we're not that far apart because um, I know 